0: Hello, and welcome to the Clark Greater Manchester podcast. In this series, we'll be talking about the impact of our work in applied health research and the power of collaboration in helping to improve clinical practice and our community's quality of life. My name is Ben Kappa, and I've got the great pleasure of hosting our first episode, which focuses on the work and impact of the Carer Support Needs Assessment Tool, or CESNAT, project within the End of Life Programme. In this episode, I'm joined by the academic leads, Dr. Gail Ewing and Professor gunn and research fellow, Dr. Christine Rowland, in a roundtable discussion. And I'm also joined by Dr. Janet Diffin via Skype in Belfast. We're recording this episode in November 2018, which is a great time to be talking about the CESNAT approach generally, as the new online training toolkit will be launched later this month. And I started by asking both Gunn and Gail to tell me a little bit about the background to Cessnat, the clinical need it was designed to meet, and a bit about their personal involvement in its development.
1: So we've been looking at a, a long time at how we might support patients to remain at home towards the end of life because that's where most patients prefer to be looked after and, and also to die. And we realised earlier that key to this is supporting the carers to support the patient because um, without the carers providing a lot of input to patient care, we can't keep patients at home. Uh, carers can provide an average of, of 70 hours of care um, in per week in the patient's final months of life. Um, and they are main organisers and providers of care. But at the same time, we know that they suffer quite considerably in terms of their own psychological and physical health and well-being. And so for a long time, the um, government, po- govern- government policy and national guidelines have recognised the importance of carers and said that their needs have to be assessed, acknowledged and addressed But the problem we were having was that there was no indication as to how this was going to be um, achieved. So that's why we kind of set set to work, because we we looked at research tools, uh, but they were designed for longer-term care in contexts like dementia care or the frail elderly, or there are a lot of measures of burden and distress, but they don't tell you what actually carers need support
2: with. we also, we, yeah, we also looked at um, uh, practice uh, tools, what was available in practice, and actually, we were very fortunate um, back in about two thousand and nine. Where we were members of a, a working party that was set up by Hospice UK or Help the Hospices as it was then, and um, which was looking at uh, uh, how carers' needs were identified. And actually, what we we found in that working party was that there really weren't any evidence-based tools used in in practice. Uh, what was much more common was a very much more informal um, approach to identifying carers' uh, needs. There weren't really any systematic processes there um, at all. Um, So it was very much a case of um, us uh, identifying a, a need for a tool to identify carer support needs in this practice context but it, it needed to be something that was evidence-based but it had to be feasible to use in practice because mm-hmm. the, those um, research uh, tools that Gunn mentioned um, they were far too lengthy uh, to use um, so we needed something mm-hmm. shorter, simpler, more straightforward.
0: And something quite based around the individual carer and the individual person, and you know we hear the the phrase "person centred care" kind of quite a lot. Christine, can you tell us a little bit more about this and sort of why this is such a central idea to the Cessna approach?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, there's a lot of talk about person centred care and patient centred care, but often there are a lot of differences between what people think it is and what people think it isn't, and that can change depending who you're talking to. So when we're thinking about person-centred care, we really mean an approach which is collaborative between the healthcare practitioner and the service users. So it's about working in partnership rather than having a professional do something to a service user. So in our view, patient-centred care is about a professional acknowledging that they might not always be the expert in that situation, um, and it can be really tough for professionals to do because they're there to fix things. So instead, it's about allowing the service user to guide what it is that they would like support with and what that might look like. And that's what's really central to the Cessna.
0: And, and you've taken this idea, the project team or the programme team have taken this idea of person or patient-centred care into this idea of carer-centred care. Can, just a question to sort of all of you, kind of how has it merged into that idea and kind of what does that bring to this this approach?
2: Well I think that's about putting carers at at the centre of the process Um, and I think what we realised early on, um, as Christine was saying there's a lot of rhetoric around uh, person-centred care, what we needed to do was much more pin down what we meant by this and actually our colleague Lynn Austin helped us define this much more clearly, how it translated into practice as a five-stage process. Um, and this enabled us to help practitioners work through a, a clear process. Um, so it begins with stage one, um, where the says is introduced to the carer, um, and that's a fairly crucial part of the process because it needs to come across as a tool to enable a conversation. Um, it's not a questionnaire that's to be filled out, uh, so it's very much enabling uh, a carer to understand that this is an opportunity for them to talk with the healthcare professional about their support needs. Stage two is about giving the carer time uh, to consider those uh, needs Um, just uh, to look through the questions and think, maybe make some notes about what would be helpful for them. It's about um, the next stage after that is the assessment conversation where together the carer and the healthcare uh, professional discuss the domains on the CESNAT that the carer has identified where they need more support and the ones they've prioritised for the conversation that day. Then in stage 4 they can go forward to talking about a shared action plan uh, where they decide what input would be helpful and this again is led by the carer so the carer has the first opportunity to say what would be helpful for them rather than the healthcare professional saying well we can offer you this, this and this this is very much tailored to the the carer's uh, needs and what's helpful for them and then finally, stage five is about a shared review, because we all know that carers' needs change. They change over time, um, and so uh, their needs may be met by this uh, first assessment conversation and action plan, but it will change, and so it needs to be revisited. Uh, revisited. So, you know, that in essence is, is the matter approach.
0: Just going to take a quick break now from the discussion with Gail, Gunn, and Christine and bring in a conversation I had via Skype with Dr. Janet Diffin. Janet was talking to me from Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, and Janet's main role in CESNAT was leading on the content for the toolkit. And I started by asking her what the main challenges were in developing the online training toolkit from the existing face-to-face package.
4: We already had the face-to-face workshop, so that was really the starting point, I guess. Um, and that really covered the background to the Sesnat and, and sort of how to use it in practice. So that really formed Learning Unit 1. And... Um, but based really on lessons learned from a national implementation project with 36 palliative care services across the UK, um, which was funded by Dimbledee Cancer Care, and a case study as well with Ayrshire Hospice, which is funded by Hospice UK, we realised that services really wanted um, a lot more guidance and support with regards to the implementation side of things. Um, so that was really a challenge in the sense that that was a lot of new content that was really developed from scratch. Um, and that formed our learning unit two. And that was very much around taking a project planning approach. Um, and, and we really learned that from Ayrshire Hospice that that was a really good approach to take. Um, also, the, the different thinking required for delivering training online as opposed to face to face. So we had to think really carefully about how to communicate those key messages Um, how to really encourage a teamwork approach to implementation, which we know is so important for success, and how to encourage those group discussions as well. So this involved firstly a process of dividing a lot of the content into smaller bite-sized topics. Um, We also developed some activity workbooks, really to enable people to work through through those key activities or points for discussion that we covered at the face-to-face training sessions. Um, Throughout the online toolkit, we also um, Highlight which of those activities we really recommended and um, which were discussed as a group. And we created some videos to help communicate sort of our key messages, including quotes from practitioners and carers as well. Um, we also have a FAQ section that covers sort of the most commonly asked questions that we would have got at the face-to-face uh, sessions and sort of a wealth of du- downloadable resources as well, um, including practical examples from practitioners um, and services
0: so i'm interested in just part of the part of that approach to the content there you talk about you did video um how why was that an important approach to take rather than it just kind of being a a word-based talker
4: yeah well those were the really the videos were created to communicate the key content those things that we really emphasized um at the face-to-face training sessions which is a lot easier to do when you're in discussions with people so i guess we didn't want people glancing over that content those are the key things you really wanted to stick in people's minds so we thought carefully about which topics were best suited to those videos um, and then went ahead and developed those um, just to really help further reiterate um, some of the key points that we wanted to communicate.
0: Okay that sounds like a really uh, innovative approach to that so where did this all kind of start then this and and how did that sort of process kind of get moving because there's quite a lot involved in there the video you've talked about obviously there's a workbook in there there's you know there's the quotes and there's actually getting the stuff actually online it seems like it's quite a big task to actually get going so how did you actually start moving forward with this?
4: Yes, so it was obviously a massive piece of work um, and I guess one of the first steps for us was, as a team was sitting down with Janet Nichols, um, sort of the IT specialist on this, and she really helped guide us thinking firstly, who actually was the user going to be, which was really important, thinking about what how this was all going to look. Um, and she really helped um, me think about how to break things down into those bite sized topics. Um, so we had a number of planning meetings around that itself, just to think how this was actually going to look. Um, so it was a huge team effort um with myself and Gunn and Gail um, and Janet Nichols thinking about th- that sort of initial stage, and then drawing in the support of loads of other people um, to help make that all happen. Um, so Claudia, you know, kept everything on track and, and took care of all the administration side of things, um, and really helped move things forward. Um, and then we also had Christine. Um, who was really helpful in the whole process as well. Um, and now we've also uh, got Samantha Wilkinson involved as well from the Clark team, who's been very heavily involved in then uploading our revised version. Um, so it's just been a massive um team effort really to sort of make all this happen.
0: And so where in your view is, is it is it at now? Obviously, we're looking at sort of launching the new sort of online toolkit very, very shortly. Um, is where in your view sort of is it is it at a point now where if there's more development to do or are you relatively sort of satisfied that this new version is you know is there for the long term
4: yeah no I'm satisfied you know we have we have got this as good as we're going to get it it's been a long process of development so a few years now has of work has has went into this and really importantly we've worked closely with practitioners both during the initial content development, but also evaluating it then in a pilot study to get their feedback on, you know, is it user friendly and what bits can we revise and change? So we've really took all their feedback and that's fed into this new version um, that we have. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited moving forward now to sort of get it out there and for people to start using it.
0: So it's clearly been a really huge undertaking and, um, as you say, it's, it's an exciting sort of um, development for this particular toolkit. What do you think, then, is the, is the real benefit to practitioners of the online version?
4: I think just have, it's accessible um, from, from anywhere, um, national, international, anybody can access it. Um, we, we worked really closely with practitioners because we understood they really wanted step-by-step guidance really on on implementation and that's exactly what what we deliver in this um, it can be a bit daunting maybe implementing something completely new into into practice but through the resources we have um developed uh, i think they'll really be able to do that quite simply um, so yeah um just that step-by-step more structured guidance i think is is a huge benefit
0: so it's a really big thanks to janet for her time in contributing to the podcast And following on from that discussion we just had, I asked Christine how the team went about testing the toolkit and what lessons were taken from that process.
3: I think Janet's talked to you about um, the amount of work and the process that went into setting up the toolkit initially and getting that first draft of it online and available. And that's really where I was brought into the team was to start thinking about how we evaluate that and carrying out that process. So we were really looking that some practitioners from some external agencies who'd been hoping to get some says that training stepped up for us and they were happy to work through the online toolkit and to provide us with feedback about how they found that. the toolkit is divided up into these two learning units which have got various modules and we did a little survey at the end of each learning unit just to see how people found it and whether it was usable to them or whether they enjoyed the experience of using it. And we also, working with Claudia Soiland Rays. We also carried out some telephone interviews with practitioners as well to really understand a bit more about what was coming through from those more quantitative results. So the sort of standard like tick boxes where we can say, okay, four out of five was a score for usability or, or whatever. Um, So we had five organisations took part in the evaluation and we had between two and five staff members from each site. So for a small sort of pilot qualitative evaluation, this was sort of fine to give us a good idea um, how people were finding it and what we might need to change or importantly keep the same. Um, We found some interesting things actually. So on the bigger picture, we found that staff, um, healthcare professionals, so there's often this idea that maybe they prefer to work in paper and they prefer face-to-face training but we found that a lot of people had used online training and were perfectly comfortable to do that so that was good because that's what we sort of hoped um but also there were a lot of things affecting whether they could access that training toolkit so things like did they have access to equipment did they have the time and the space to work through an online training module while they were at work and you know did they have a good internet connection? Because some of the hospices they work at or some of the NHS locations, either the internet wasn't so good or they were blocked from some of our original content. Um, so some of the videos, we had to find different platforms to host those. on.
0: Exactly. So there was the blocking YouTube challenge <laughs> <laughs> that is quite often a think. In, uh, we did in have a few discussions yeah, yeah
3: about what, what other yeah. platform could we use for that. Mm. Um, so yeah so some people were doing the training at home as well so maybe on their own time and not getting paid for it so that was a a bit of an issue that came through as well so those real sort of organizational aspects were affecting interactions and use of the toolkit overall though for the individuals who we spoke to luckily for us um, I think luckily we put a lot of time and effort into this but they did find the toolkit acceptable and usable and it met their needs in a training capacity so that was And so we put a lot of time and effort into it, but it was still a huge relief that, yeah, this was working the way that we thought it should do. Um, And I think one of the limitations of Learning Unit 1, so this is modules that are really an introduction to patient-centred care, an introduction to the CESNAT and CESNAT approach, Uh, participants felt that that was quite a long unit, maybe, and they felt that there was quite a bit of repetition within that. And again, what's great about piloting is we had a hunch that this was too long <laughs> and that we'd gone a bit overboard. But as true academics go, where would we begin cutting things out? And this really forced our hand in that, well, mm. as academic as we like to be, crossing the eyes and uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, we really need to cut back some of this stuff. So there was a lot of editing that went on. And then that brings with it consistency fun, where you've got you know, literally tens and tens and tens of documents with people editing away like mad. So yeah, so uh, there's a lot of sort of which version are we on? <laughs> have you made those changes yet? And backwards and forwards. I mean,
0: how did you overcome something like that? Because that sounds logistically really, I'm going to be polite here, very challenging. So <laughs> how do you get over that kind of that thing? Because I think you know this is something that's incredibly important. Evidence is obviously the right at the heart of this about bringing this new approach into practice. So with those tens of documents out there in the domain, <laughs> how do you make that all come together? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think there was an awful lot of working between Gail, Gunn and Janet and again, Janet's really the bedrock and the linchpin of all of this. So version control and keeping us all on track. But no, we've discussed that change. We're not making it. And yes, we're definitely having that change. And no, you're definitely on this, this document. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I think it was really, well, for me, who had never done something like this, and, and I am not a teacher within the universities either, um, it was a revelation how much work went into that just cross-checking everything um, and reading it and proofreading it and how much time that took I have huge (laughs) admiration for people that develop these things now but it was a lot of, of work but it actually needed us as the people who had developed it and who had done the face to face training mm-hmm. to actually know what you know could go in and had to be taken out as, as well. I've, you know that that seemed to be really important. But I think Janet kept us very much <laughs> on on track. Um, but it yeah it was a lot of work.
0: 'Cause I suppose with with collaboration comes those potential potential challenges. Mm. So there was obviously a clear linchpin and a clear defined yeah. leader in that in, yeah. in in that as well. Yeah. Okay. That's, and as much really as good, some that.
3: of us in the group are Luddites, given that we've got people at Manchester, Cambridge, Janet's over in Belfast it was great that we did have you know we had to all get to grips with you know yes. google hubs for example <laughs> and how their track changes works it didn't matter how much we might not have wanted to you know we had to get pretty expert at those to make sure that this could work
0: what's already amazing to see is how the sesnet approach is being is already a pretty advanced point because it's obviously been been meant many years in the, in the making already and it's already been used by practitioners worldwide so Got a question for you, really. Um, mm-hmm. What countries is it currently sort of being used in, and how do you feel that the new training toolkit will help um, the Cessna approach to be embedded internationally more effectively? Mm.
1: Well, first and foremost, I, I think we should recognise how widely it's it's been implemented in in the UK. Mm. Um, we have trained 455 practitioners from 117 organisations within the UK. I mean, I say we, I mean, this is mainly down to, to Gail's work. She's very much been leading this training. And that's been delivered face-to-face so far. We've also done training, again, led by Gail very much so. We've done training for people from Canada, Australia, Austria, uh, Denmark, uh, Netherlands, Sweden, and also two forthcoming sessions for uh, Portuguese and Norwegian teams. And we've got people from 25 countries that have licences to to use the the Cessna so far. But uh, whilst you know the 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 Cessnat team has just about been able to meet the demand for training within the UK. And and that's even at the, as a stretch and quite resource intensive, you know the the materials and training that we've had available for international teams uh, up to now has been much more limited. So 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 far it's kind of been a case of you know here, here you have uh, here you are here you have a license with a few instructions now get on with it, um, and that just hasn't been satisfactory really.
0: The idea is that the new training and implementation toolkit will create a much more consistent approach and a much more easy... Because it feels like, Christine, when you were talking about the different situations mm. people are in with IT and yeah. different working patterns, different organisations, that's just in the UK. So multiply that by all these different countries yeah. we talked about... <laughs> It starts you can start to get a picture about why that's a challenge and this more consistent approach is, mm. is required. Okay. Yeah, but it, yeah. it
1: does give people a resource to tap yeah. into, a, a full training programme to tap into that, that international teams haven't been able to have before.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, as Gunn says, that's, that's really important, being able to tap into that because I think what has happened that we haven't touched on as yet um, has been, it's been a, a realisation over the years that we've been working with the not how much we have to do um, training uh, around both the tool and the Cessnat approach. So, um, you know, I have to say we were pretty naive to, be, to begin with and it was a very, very simple, basic introduction. Um, but as we have done more work on the research side of things and understood more about implementation and practice, it's become much clearer uh, how much of a change in practice the Cessna approach is, this person-centred uh, approach. Um, and so we're we're much more upfront now about saying this is actually a change in practice, quite a big change in practice, and you do need training about this. Uh, whereas um, I think uh, before we hadn't realised how much help you know people needed uh, with that. Um, and again, as we've done more and more work through time, we've, we've also understood um, that it's not just about training individuals. Um, uh, as as Christine was saying, there's learning unit one, which is about training the individuals to use the CESNAT and the Cessnat approach. But she also mentioned there's a second learning unit about the organisational aspects. And again, we've become much clearer from our research work that those organisational aspects are really vital if you want to implement this in practice, but also sustain it over over time. Um, and uh, that's something that uh, is that little bit harder to get across to organisations. They've got lots of other things on the go, Um, so while the Cessnat looks a really simple, small tool, there is quite a lot to think about because we're implementing for carers, and carers are part of the unit of care and palliative care, but they, it's always with patients and carers. They're they're not necessarily the 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 um, driving force for the service delivery uh, at all. So that's that's been an interesting thing we've learned over time.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what would we say, sort of, as a group, then, are the wide lessons learned from this work? Obviously, we've talked quite a lot about you know making sure it fits and is flexible, but is also consistent enough for, for, for professionals in any situation, in any organisation, in any country to actually use. But the wider lessons for how services might improve the support for carers in the future, what do we feel are the, the key takeaways from, from this? Go on.
1: Well, we, we've learnt a lot generally about what it takes to um, implement person-centred care assessment and support uh, within organizations and we 've been able to work with hospice uk to 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 shape those lessons into ten core recommendations for organizations so so we learned from the, the CESNAT work and our implementation work there, but we also did a wider stakeholder cons- consultation with hospice um, supported by hospice u k We did focus groups with practitioners we did a survey um, with stakeholders as well and we were able then to crystallize these into these ten recommendations which which helps services think about what they need to have in place in the wider organisation to really meaningfully support carers. It's, for instance, simple nuts and bolts issues like do you have a procedure for identifying who the carers are in the first place? Do you actually have a system for recording any information on them? As well as kind of having a protocol for, for assessment and support and making sure there's training for practitioners um, making sure that there's, there's, there's leadership that can drive this forward, champions that can lead from the front. You, you have to put all of these things in place to, to actually meaningfully um, support carers uh, within healthcare organisations. But I suppose what we, we also very much learned from this is that the, the core issue is that you have to resolve is where care is fit within the healthcare system. You know, are they just uh, an add-on to the care you deliver, or are they actually a core, central part of what your service is going to provide?
2: Yeah, I think um, that is the key uh, thing. <laughs> you know, we've really understood over the years. I, you know, I think it's it's taken this process of research um, and implementation and practice studies to enable us to really crystallize out that that issue. Um, there is this enormously strong ethos in palliative and end of life care that you know one of being there for the family um, not just uh, the patient. Um, but uh, there are a lot of hurdles for organisations to get over in order to deliver um, care to the carers in this anything like the same way as they're uh, delivering uh, to patients, and and so we, if you like, are almost sort of raising the, the the challenge, this question of who really has responsibility for carers um, with an end of life care provision. You know, where exactly do they fit? can we turn that ethos um, into a, a, a practical reality? Um, and if you want to do that, those recommendations that uh, K- uh, that good mentioned are the issues that organisations need to be thinking about to be able to turn that um, ethos of being there for the family into a practice reality.
0: And so in terms of those ten recommendations... Um, I suppose the, the, you know, the, the first question is where might somebody actually find those 10 recommendations? Are they accessible to anybody to, to read about?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, they're in our report uh, that is uh, freely uh, downloadable from the Hospice UK website. So if you just Google um, 10 recommendations for care assessment and support or just look on the Hospice UK website you'll be able to get the report.
0: And can you give us maybe a, a couple of highlights from those ten recommendations? Let's,
2: well, well the, There's the four... Yeah, yeah so, the, the, yeah. the core
1: cool ones, really, is, is this having a consistent process for identifying who the carers are and um, having some basic information on them, like, you know, what's, what is their relationship to the patient, um, you know, are they working, and so on and so forth... Do you have a protocol for assessment and support? And do you have a recording system for for, um, separate from your recording system for patients where you can record the information about the carer, the outcomes of the assessments, the actions taken and so on? So those are the the core items. Yeah.
2: And you need those basic items in place to even begin to start um, doing this. Over and above that, we've identified another six um, that are um, enabling organisations to implement this process um, of uh, what we would say is comprehensive, person-centred carer assessment and support. So those others are a process for training practitioners about carer assessment and support. So if they're going to deliver something, they need a training process. It's about addressing the issue of available time and workload capacity for carer assessment and support so not only fitting it in when there is time available for it. There needs to be uh, support from senior management to drive that process forward and um, support from role models or champions for uh, carer assessment and support to enable that to happen on the ground. But then there are two further um, recommendations that are really crucial, Um, one is about pathways for communication, Um, so a two-way system of communication from the senior management down to the workforce um, uh, on the ground about what they expect but also a process of communication back up to senior management about how it's going. Um, And uh, finally, procedures for monitoring and auditing process of carer assessment and support. So knowing how it's going um, and making changes if things are not working so well. So a, a constant review process at the organisational level.
0: Fantastic thank you very much for that and so finally and probably the most important question of the entire episode is (laughs) how would an organisation go about actually accessing the new training toolkit because there's clearly a huge demand um, both you know for the carer community across in the country and across the world but also for professionals and for organisations that work with with carers quite a lot so how would they go about actually accessing the new training
2: toolkit?
1: Well yeah, coming back to the Cessnat training and implementation toolkit, if people want to use it, they need to go to our website which is Cessnat.org. And says Cessnat, there's no E
0: in Cessnat, is there? It's it
1: is S C sorry, it's C S N A
4: T.org.
3: And can I just say don't make the mistake I did of doing www.cessnat.org, right. because yeah. that does not take you there's there. no yeah. www. So it's okay. just
1: literally Cessnat.org. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And that that will give people all the information about uh, how to access the training and implementation toolkit. Also, it will tell you what you need to do in terms of obtaining uh, a license. If you want to use the tool in practice, you need to do the training first, but then you need to also obtain a license to use it. All all that is free, so it's all freely uh, available but we, we realise that people do need to have that training in order to use the, the Cessnat approach uh, the way it's intended to be used as a, as a truly sort of person-centred um, care subordinates needs uh, assessment and support
0: approach. So it's an absolutely huge thanks from me to everybody that's been involved in this episode of the podcast. That's Gail, Gunn, Christine, and of course, Janet via Skype from Belfast. If you or your organisation is interested in using Cessnat or accessing the training, it is freely available at cessnat.org. That's C-S-N-A-T.org. The only requirement is to get a licence to use Cessnat, which is also provided at no cost. All the details are available at cessnat.org. Please join us again for another episode of the Clark GM podcast, where we'll be talking about the projects and concepts that are right at the heart of our work. The Collaboration for Leadership in Applied Health Research and Care Greater Manchester is a partnership between providers and commissions from the NHS, industry, the third sector and the University of Manchester. It's funded by the National Institute for Health Research.